Well, brothers and sisters, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, I do welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our exposition, our walk through, journey through the apocalypse of John. This morning, we come to the second half of the seventh chapter, a portion that we have considered in past weeks. Uh, and thankfully, we are not revisiting uh, previous unclear passages this morning. Uh, but with God's help, we shall press on. In this second half of the seventh chapter, John is given a vision of the great multitude, uh, the multitude of which no one could count. They are a multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongues, and peoples, and they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Uh, they are clothed in robes, white robes, and there are palm branches, branches of victory in their hands. John's vision is one of that great gathering of the saints. Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they have been gathered so that with one voice they would sing salvation to our God. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This great multitude is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. Abraham who would be the father of many or a multitude of nations. They are the children of Abraham. If your faith is in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. Uh, not in the sense that we are physical descendants of Abraham. We all know that. But our faith is like that of Abraham. He is known as the father of faith because Abraham believed God and because of belief in God, faith in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is also true for all of those who likewise believe in the promise of God that the seed would arise, the seed would crush the head of the serpent, the seed would bless the nations, that the seed would be a greater prophet than Moses that the seed would be a greater king than David, and that the kingdom of this seed, in this kingdom, that there would be no end to his rule. We all know, of course, that this seed is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus said to Abraham, or said that Abraham believed in this. In fact, the Lord Jesus said that Abraham longed to see his day, and that Abraham saw his day, and that Abraham was filled with great joy. Abraham entered into his rest holding fast to the promise of God. And now in Revelation 7, we are given a glimpse into heaven where all of those who share the faith of Abraham, the saints of all, who are numbered more than the sand of the sea and stars of the sky, who like Abraham have trusted in the, the one to come, Christ, who have longed for his day, who have seen it and are filled with joy, they now behold with their eyes the reality of the promises of God. Their, their faith, as we said last week, their faith has turned to sight. On that day, all of heaven and all of the hosts of heaven will sing the sevenfold honor of God. Amen. Blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This will be the song of all of heaven. Now, if you're like me, you might have read this passage and thought, well, that's it. <clears throat> There's nothing more to say, is there? It's the end of the story. What more is there to say? And it is interesting that as John beholds this great vision of this great multitude, and if you might be able to imagine it in your mind's eye, John seeing a sea of people, a number that no one could count, and giving due praise and glory and honor to God. As John is in the midst of this, you might imagine him kind of getting poked in the side by one of the elders. It's an interruption, if you will, an interruption of what John is beholding. And the elder says to him, John, who are these people? There's a question asked to him. Hey, we might have, all, 
as I did. I thought, well, that's it. It's the end of all things. But the elder is, is not, through the inspiration of, of God, of course, the, the elder is, is not satisfied with just putting a period in what John is writing, what John is recording. There's more that the elder, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants John to communicate. This morning, we shall consider this question. Because in my studies, I thought it was an interesting one. One that, that perplexed me for at least two days. And I said, there's more there. And I hope that you will bear with me as we, we work to, I hope, finding the answer and then also the purpose for the question. So let's begin, I think, four or five points this morning. Number one, let's begin with the question. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered or asked. That, that's verse 13. One of the elders answered or is asking, saying to me, those who are clothed in white robes. Who are they? And where have they come from? In my study, I thought, what an interesting question. And and what an interesting time to ask the question. What an interesting question and, and what an interesting time to ask the question. It, it would be it would have been enough for this seven chapter to have ended with the sevenfold blessing of God. With the honor and the praise and the glory. It would have been enough for this seven chapter to just end there. But but for whatever reason, which we hope to find out this morning, in God's wisdom, it was not enough. God is allowing John to see, but then also to write more than what he sees. The elder is asking a hypothetical question, meaning it's a question that he already knows the answer to. He's asking John, almost as a pop quiz, who are they? Uh, the ones dressed in white, who are they? Pop quiz, John. Ready? Who are those people? Where did they come from? Oh, here's another question that we might ask. Who is this elder? Well, we don't know the answer to the elder. We don't know the answer to that. Who are these people? Well, we might be able to answer that, can't we? We've gone through a few weeks of, of clarifying who these people are. They're the 144,000 from every tribe. They are the decreed elect of God who have been beloved before the foundation of the world. John could have said that. John could have said that. They are those whom God has loved with an everlasting love. But those who God loves and whose love will endure even beyond the grave. John could have said that. They are those who are numbered by God, the 144,000. Uh, but those who no man can count. John could have said all these things. All of these things are true, aren't they? Well, there's a reason then why the unknown elder poses this question to John. Uh, again, we might imagine John in absolute awe of the sheer magnitude, of the weightiness of the glory of the triune God. Uh, in awe of the sheer magnitude of the amount of people worshipping before the splendor of the throne. Before the, the splendor of the one who sits upon the throne. And then, if you will allow me again, the, the elder is kind of nudges John. Hey, John, who are all these people? Where did they come from? John's attention is, is essentially, it's, it's, mis, it's, it, it's redirected. The elder is testing John's knowledge. Who are these clothed in white robes? Where did they come from? And John gives an answer that I wish my dad used to often ask me questions that he already knew the answer to, but knowing that I didn't know the answer to them, and it would make me feel very small, uh, not because I didn't know the answer to something that he already knew the answer to. So I wish I would have answered like John answered. John answered like this. He says, you know, you're, you're asking me a question that you already know the answer to. You know. You know, my Lord, he says. My, my Lord, he says to him, you know. Uh, does John know the answer to the question? It's a pop quiz. Does John know the answer? It's possible that he does. I, I don't want to definitive, definitively say, yes, of course he knows the answer. Uh, it's possible that he does. It could be that John's response is one of humility. That, that John is possibly saying, I know, but surely you know more than I do. 
So why don't you tell me, because I'm sure that your answer is going to be better than mine, although I think I have an answer. It could be that that's the, the Lord you know kind of response. It could be. Or it could be that John does not know the answer. That he is in fact saying, I do not know, Lord, please tell me. Because I know that you know. Whether John knows or does not know, it's not really important. What is important is that we consider that the elder wants an answer to this question. The elder is pressing John because he wants to answer the answer stated. Why does the answer need to be stated? So that the answer could be recorded. Why does the answer need to be recorded? So that it could benefit the church. John says, my Lord, you know. You will notice that this title, Lord, if you're looking at your scriptures, it's not capitalized. He's not speaking to the Lord. That's important to know. He's speaking to a Lord, lowercase. That meant to be a title of respect, not a title, not an, not an, uh, a word of worship. Not, not a, an expression of worship, an expression of respect. John will later make the mistake of worshiping a creature. To which the creature will say, stand up, stand up, I'm a creature just like you, don't worship me, don't do that. It seems to say, it seems that John is saying, I don't know what you know and will you tell me? But there is a purpose for this question. It's not just a pop quiz for pop quiz's sake, if you will. He's not just testing John's knowledge to see how much John knows. Again, John is communicating a vision. A vision to seven churches. Seven churches that would be representative of the church for all time. The glorious scene in heaven that John beholds is interrupted by a question that God wants John to be sure that he records to answer. The answer will eventually lead us, I think, to the purpose of this question. Which we'll consider at the very end. Let's go to our second point. The answer. Well, what's the answer? Verse 14. The elder tells him, they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The elder asks, who are these? John says, tell me. The elder tells him the answer. They are those who come out of, listen to the phrase here, the great tribulation. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It may pass our eyes without great attention, but much attention has been placed upon this phrase, great tribulation. Uh, for my own listening pleasure, uh, more so entertainment, I'll listen throughout the week to people who I know disagree with me, uh, explain their uh, reasoning of why they think this is something other than what I'm going to explain to you now. Some have attempted to make a distinction between these two things, between the tribulation and the great tribulation. The distinction made by some is that tribulation is some sort of moderate trouble, moderate suffering, moderate tribulation that believers have experienced upon the resurrection of Christ. That's the one view. But the great tribulation, they will say, is that which has not yet come. Let me slow down for a second. They will say the great tribulation I'm going to say something in a moment. They will say the great tribulation is that which has not yet come, but is reserved for that final, relatively brief period, seven years in their estimation, of time of which extraordinary trials or tribulation will come, through which saints will be given um, a free pass to escape from. Meaning, they will not suffer during that time of tribulation. They will be removed from the earth. Now, some of you are already nodding your heads because you know those things. You know that side well. Well, let me ask this. Is there a distinction between tribulation and the great tribulation? Let me ask you this. Does it matter? Should you care? Well, yes, it matters. And yes, you should care. Or else I wouldn't be talking about it this morning. I'm going to argue that there is no distinction. And that, yes, it matters. Let's do a little work through these scriptures, though. And then we're going to get to this great tribulation thing. The phrase great tribulation, where does it come from? Uh, it comes from Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. 
Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, where in, in Daniel's vision, he's given a glimpse into the, incur- the occurrences of the end times, into the eschaton. Daniel 12, 1, he's given a vision into the, the occurrences of the last days. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Daniel says, and there will be a great time of distress or great tribulation, such as never occurred and since was never or since since there was a nation at that time. Daniel's seeing this. He's saying, we're suffering now, right? Israel is exiled into Babylon. Daniel's saying, we're going through trouble now. There is coming a time when there will be greater trouble, though. Think about Israel. When Israel is exiled into Babylon, it's a it's a more isolated suffering. Uh, it's more localized, meaning it's Israel suffering, but Israel suffering in a in a specific location. They're not suffering all over the world. Say it this way: it's the people of God suffering in a in a specific place, but not the people of God suffering all over the world. It, it's not like there were the people of God suffering in the Americas at the time of Daniel, right? They weren't there. They were only in Babylon. Daniel's saying there's coming a time when the people of God will be dispersed throughout the earth and there will be great tribulation wherever they are. This phrase then is later mentioned by Christ and then Christ even kind of elaborates on this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 where our Lord says in explaining the last days, Quoting and elaborating on the prophecy of Daniel, uh, Matthew 24, 21. And there will be great tribulation. There it is. Such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now and ever will. Christ is looking forward to to the end time of which he is saying it is upon you. Also found in Mark 13. So what is tribulation? Think about this. When you heard the words, as I, as I was saying it earlier, great tribulation, what did you automatically think of? When I said seven year period, when I said uh, the church will, be, will, will, will escape that suffering, that tribulation, if you're like me and my, have my background, I think it's important for us to come to grips with the fact that when we hear tribulation, when we hear great tribulation, we automatically have assumptions that, that, and images that pop up in our minds. We have a background that when we hear those words, automatically all of the things from our background start popping into our mind and we go, I see it, I see it, I see it. We see in our minds red skies, demolished cities, smoke rising from the ashes, right? Buildings that have come tumbling down, hills and valleys that are charred by, by fires, dead bodies all over the place, and the Antichrist is sitting on his throne in the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem. That's at least my background. Maybe you think, I, yeah, I, I do have a very weird background, but that's at least the way I was raised. Brothers and sisters, no matter if that's not your background, no matter if that's not your, your assumption, the things that you automatically think of, it's important that you always confront them. If you hear something without having a knowledge of it and you already assume to know something about it, that's called an assumption. What must you do? Test your assumption with what? The data. Uh, test your assumption with truth. Uh, let's, let's bring my assumptions, the things that I automatically assume to be true, let's bring them to truth and let's see if they stand up or not. Well, what is tribulation? That's a good place to start. Tribulation is pressure. It's opposition. It's persecution. Pressure, opposition, persecution. To do what? Pressure for what? What, what are you being pressured to do? What, what, why are you being opposed? For what reason would you be persecuted? Because of your faith. Very simply. I I can think of people uh, who often would say, I'm being persecuted on my job. But it's not because of their faith. It's because people don't like you. That's a difference, right? It's a difference between 
I'm, I'm being faithful in my, my witness to Christ versus I just don't get along with people at my job, but Christ has nothing to do with it. That's different. That's not, don't want to call that persecution. Persecution is more people recognize that I'm a believer. And when they have their uh, ungodly conversations, they notice that I leave the room. And then they begin to talk about me because they know about my faith and they start to say things about Christianity that they know are going to push my buttons or at least cause a reaction out of me. You're being persecuted. That's persecution. You are being pressured to do what? To compromise your faith. They're almost saying, let's see what you got. Let's see what you're made out of. Let's see who you really are. Pressure comes from all sides, doesn't it? Oppression, opposition, tribulation, it comes from all sides. Yeah, it comes from false teachers who will attempt to seduce the saints to believe in a false Christ and therefore believe in a false Christianity. Pressure will come through persecution and oppression. Tribulation comes in economic oppression. All of these things are tribulation. It comes in economic persecution, as was experienced by the church of Smyrna. Tribulation comes in the form of, in, form of imprisonment and death, as was the case in Smyrna and Pergamum. Tribulation comes in opposition to that which God commands his, his people to obey. The opposing the veracity of God's word, people will do that. They, they will challenge what you think the Bible teaches or what the Bible teaches that you believe is true. They will challenge, oppose its relevance. They will challenge, oppose its application in, in this world today. They will say it was for a time long ago and not for today. And your interpretation no longer stands or is untrue. That's opposition. That, that my dear friend, is tribulation. And that is what I believe John is speaking of. The church has and will continue to be pressured, experience tribulation from within and pressured from without to do what? Ultimately, it's for this to compromise your faith. Uh, the 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 Satan has been released so that he might lead people astray. He has been released for a period of time so that he might lead people astray. When you are being opposed, it's so that you might you might turn from your faith in Christ. And it comes in these various forms. It is, brothers and sisters, great tribulation. It is intensity of seduction. It is oppression through which believers, though, true believers, you are guaranteed to pass through it. Why? Because you have been sealed. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit so that even though tribulation comes in all of these varied forms, God has promised that He will not lose any of those who are a part of His number. You have been sealed. You have been given a promise from God that because you have been sealed, you will not compromise your faith. Because you have been sealed, you will not be lost. Because you have been sealed, you will hold fast to Christ. Someone will say, I'm trying to hold fast to Christ. Let me tell you something. You will hold fast to Christ. You're not trying to hold fast to Christ. The reason why you will hold fast to Christ is because Christ has sealed you as his own. Therefore, you will not be lost. That's important. Because we are suffering great tribulation. And in the midst of it, it's important to keep in mind that God has promised this. Do not harm the earth until the elect have been sealed from God. Poor God, John hears that great number. Then John sees the multitude that no one could count. And they are worshiping God. Who are they? They are those who have been sealed and those who by the grace of God have endured. What? Endured tribulation. They have been kept through tribulation. Not a short seven years. 
But since the resurrection of Christ, the church has been suffering great tribulation. We often speak about tribulation as being something that happens much later. It's still to come. It actually begins and began with Christ's own suffering and the shedding of his blood. When does tribulation begin? It began when the sinless Son of Man suffered on behalf of our sin. Those who follow Christ, we identify with Christ and we suffer with him. It's important to note that when John wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when John received this vision, if John only had in mind great tribulation as being something in the way, way distant future, let's say 2,000 years from the time that John wrote it, John is saying there will be great tribulation. He's writing to a church, seven churches, who are suffering great tribulation. And John's saying, but I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about a church that will come 2,000 years later. And should the Lord endure... Terry, his, his coming, then maybe a church 3,000 years later. Well, what benefit does that have for the church who's first hearing this? What, what, what good does it do them? John, you're talking about a great tribulation that's not going to come until what we think is now 2,000 years later. Well, then what good did it do for that church? The church uh, in the early times of Christianity, the church in the Middle Ages, the church during, what good is, is, is any of this if it was only meant for something that was just at the very, very end, a church at the very, very end? Those who have been reading Revelation all of these centuries, all of these two millennia now, they therefore then receive no benefit from these words if it's not meant for them, only for those who are going to live during a seven year period of time. Unless all that we have experienced since the resurrection of Christ has been suffering and tribulation. And that's and if, then we should always be ready for his glorious return. And if we're also aware of the fact that we are constantly going to be opposed by the enemy. This letter is meant for the church that suffers tribulation. Brothers and sisters, was tribulation not great when Pergamum witnessed the death of Antipas by the sword? Did they not gather together and cry together as they mourned over their brother and our brother who was killed for the sword, by the sword, for the faithful witness of Christ and his holding fast to God's word? That's why he was killed. Was tribulation not great when the woman came to the church of Thyatira with the same spirit as Jezebel, claiming to be a prophetess, leading people astray and into heresy? Was tribulation not great when Smyrna was exiled from social life, not able to work, suffering poverty, ostracized because of their unwillingness to offer false worship to false gods? This letter is written to them in the midst of their tribulation. And this letter is also written to you and I during our tribulation and to all the saints who live among us now. From the saints who suffered under the persecution from Diocletian to the saints who are now suffering all over the world. Go tell the saints in Pakistan. There is no tribulation, not till later. They will say, you could have fooled me. Go tell the saints in Iraq that there is no suffering. No tribulation, not till later. They are experiencing great tribulation, are they not? And in the midst of it, Christ is holding them fast. Christ is holding them fast. The elder says, these are those they have wa- who have washed their robes, verse 14, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. On the one hand, uh, the robes have been made white and washed in the blood of the Lamb. It, it means that despite the resistance, despite the tribulation, despite the suffering, despite the sorrow, 
by God's grace, they have been sealed, and therefore they will continue to believe and testify to the Lamb's death on our behalf. On His behalf. They will continue to testify on behalf of the Lamb. That's, that's the one sense, that they have been united to Christ. They will not stop testifying to Christ. It's the reason why they sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But there's more, I think, to this, this understanding of, of robes being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let's go to our third point. The robes washed in the blood. <clears throat> the elder says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is a metaphor. But I'd like you to think for a moment about that kind of a metaphor. But we understand, of course, that if you want to make something clean, if you're wearing a white shirt or wearing a white dress, and it got dirty, it gets soiled with mud, the last thing that any of you who know how to make things extremely white, uh, the last thing that you would recommend for someone to do in order to make those white garments that have been soiled white again, the last thing you would recommend is to go wash those things in blood. Then they will be white as snow. It is an amazing metaphor, isn't it? The metaphor of refining or purging is found in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. And when we think of this white, we must not think of color per se. We, we must think of purity. That purity in this sense, purity in that which was soiled has now been made clean. That which was blurred has now been cleared so that you can see. Specifically, that soil, that blurriness that we're talking about is sin. And Christ, by his blood, has purified us from our sin. It's part of the redemptive purposes of Christ to purify us from sin. The scriptures say, though our sins were as scarlet, they have been made white as snow. Now, if you look at snow upon the ground, you'll say it's white. But when you pick up snow and begin to look at each flake, are they white? They are pure. They're trans, they're, they're translucent. You can see right through them. God has made our sin no more. God through Christ has made our sin no more. Our faith even now, our faith even now is being refined. We are being purged of sin and made holy, conformed to Christ. Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. What is the tool of God's purging. Uh, what tool does God use to purge us after we have been washed in the blood of Christ? We are continually being washed in the blood of Christ. We have been washed in the blood of Christ. We are being washed in the blood of Christ. And we will be washed in the blood of Christ. And what is one of the tools that Christ uses to make us holy and to make him like him? Make us like him. Ironically, it's tribulation. The elder says, who are all of these that are now standing before the throne, uh, washed in robes that have been made clean? Uh, the elder says, it's those who have passed through the tribulation, the great tribulation. How have they done so? Uh, they have done so because they have been sealed. They have done so because they have been washed in the blood. They have done so also because God has used tribulation to make them holy so that they they can therefore stand before the throne. But but there's an interesting word that the, the elder uses. It's washed. Temple. Tabernacle. They are before the throne of God, verse 15. They serve him day and night in his temple. They sit, uh, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Uh, sinners have no access to the throne of God. God is holy. 
But if we've been washed clean and made righteous, we are granted access, entrance into his throne. Notice the Old Testament priestly language is being used here. Words like washing, again, temple, tabernacle. God is communicating this. In our last point, we said there's something more to this washed in our robes, being washed in blood. There's something more to it. God is communicating that believers are being allowed access into the presence of God because they are his. They are his holy nation. They are his. They are his royal priesthood. Only the priests are allowed access into the presence of God. Only the priests are allowed access into the Holy of Holies. And what must the priests do before they they enter into the Holy of Holies? They, They must go through a ceremonial washing, cleansing. The elder says, who are these? They are those who have gone through that cleansing. They are those who have been washed, but not washed in water. They've been washed in something purer than water. The blood of the Lamb. They have washed in the blood of the Lamb. Exodus 19 talks about this washing garments in order to dwell in God's presence. Uh, We have been clothed, therefore, Galatians 3 tells us, in Christ. All of you who have been baptized into Christ have, have clothed yourselves in Christ, with Christ. Christ who has shed his own blood. The blood of the new covenant so that we might be cleansed and justified so that we might have confidence to enter into the most holy place. Hebrews 10. And serve in his temple day and night. This this day and night does not mean there's going to be a morning and night. It's it's symbolizing forever that there will be no end to their service. There, There will be no need for rest because in his presence there is nothing but rest. We have been made priest of God, serving in his temple. And there will be no end to that amazing fellowship. Our triune God will spread his tabernacle over us. He will uh, spread his tent over us. And, And this is an allusion to Ezekiel 37, where God says, I will establish my sanctuary over them. Where my sanctuary is in the midst of them forever. It is an eternal shelter. It's a never-ending canopy of God's presence. Let's look again at, at verse 16 and 17 as we close in just a moment. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I wonder if you're hearing it. But it is a clear allusion. To those people of God who wandered in the desert. The children of Israel. And as they wandered. They hungered, didn't they? They begged for food. And God provided food for them. Manna from heaven. And they were not satisfied with this manna. They even at one point said, when we were slaves in Egypt, (coughs) we sat around pots of meat. Our bellies were full when we were slaves. And now we are hungry. They said to Moses, you brought us out of the desert only so that we might starve. The Lord says of these children of Israel, these true people of God, you will hunger no more. They thirsted. They cried out for water. And God commanded Moses, speak to the rock. But Moses, out of anger and frustration, struck the rock. Because of his sin, he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Christ says to these people, this children of Israel, those who are the true Israel of God, 
Not only will you thirst no more, but you will be led to springs of living water. Children of Israel who wandered in the, in the desert. If you can imagine wandering in the desert. The heat of the sun, the sun of Egypt, beating down upon your head, and upon your shoulders and upon your backs. Looking for shade and there being none. Having to set up tents or tabernacles. Just to escape the heat. The Lord says. The heat of the sun will no longer hinder you. He says he will be. Our tabernacle. He will shelter us from the sun. And he will lead us into the promised land. He leads us in. He's already gone before us. The promises the Lord gives his sealed ones. Hunger no more. Thirst no more. (coughs) The heat from the rays of the sun will not oppress them. The sands of the desert shall not oppress them. Triumphant lamb. Our great shepherd greater than Moses. Shall lead us to springs of living water. And he promises that we will have no more sorrow. That he will wipe every tear from our eyes. What joy. What bliss. And it reminds us then. Of what is the purpose for this question that the elder asks. Fourth and finally, why did he ask the question? What's the purpose? Go back to the first point. John sees the scene. The elder says, hey, who are these? Where did they come from? Brothers and sisters, we are in the seventh chapter of the apocalypse of John. What is this book so far? What is this book? Well, it's, it, it's apocalypse. You've taught us that. It, it, it means unveiling. It's, it's a revealing. Uh, what more is it? Well, it's a collection of visions that Christ gave to an angel, uh, to which the angel gives to John, to which John writes and communicates to the church. Yes, yes, yes. But for what purpose? Well, to tell them the future. Ah, wrong. That's the wrong, that's the wrong answer. To tell them what they should expect. You're getting closer. In one sense, yes. So that we might know what comes ahead. Yes, in one sense. In one sense, so that that we might know what to expect. Yes, yes. But why is all of that intended? Is this letter only intended to tell us what to expect as we journey on? I don't believe it's only that. The apocalypse is written to the church. The seven churches of Asia Minor. And to the church that remains until Christ returns. Therefore, it is more than an unveiling. Of what will take place in the time before Christ's return. I believe it is. A letter of pastoral instruction, encouragement, and care. Now that may sound weird. This is the most uh, misunderstood book in the Bible and you're calling it an epistle? I think so. And I think it is an epistle, not from John. John is not the pastor of these seven churches. I think it is an epistle from Christ. Christ is our pastor. The Pope is not your pastor. He is no one's pastor. Your elders are under shepherds to the great shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look here in verse... uh, 
17. The lamb in the center of the throne is their shepherd. He is our shepherd. It is a pastoral letter from our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb in the, in the center of the throne. It's a letter that is meant to comfort the church in the midst of her tribulation, showing them, showing us, showing those who will come after us, should the Lord delay his coming. The tribulation is only meant to purify us, to conform us to Christ, and ready us for that great day when we shall see him face to face. It's not something that we should fear. If, the, if, if tribulation is a tool that God uses to purge, to purge us of sin, then we should not run from it. We should embrace it. Make me like you, O oh Lord. Make me like you. And, and if this is the tool that you use to make me like you, let your will be done. <clears throat> if the cross and the nails and the spear were the tools that God used to redeem us, then let tribulation that comes be used to purge us of all sin. Keep in mind, this is the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. Which means it is a preserving love. An enduring love, one that will go beyond the grave. Though you suffer great tribulation, you are not abandoned. I pray that you're encouraged by that. One of the critiques of the Reformed faith is that we are too heavy on theology and light on practicality. If learning that the love of God is without beginning, without end, preserving and enduring, if that's not practical enough, then I don't know what is. This letter is meant for the church to see that what awaits us beyond the suffering is rest in the presence of God. A rest that will never end and a rest that will be absent of sin. Suffering shall no longer afflict us as it has in this life. As we are wandering in this world, we are the children of Israel. We are being provided for, yes, but we are being led by our shepherd into the promised land. That land to which he has already entered into. He is leading us into his rest. This is why I believe the question is asked. It's so that this, so that we might look at the sevenfold blessing of the multitude and say, what is there more to say? <clears throat> there will be silence in heaven. That will come in chapter 8. But not before those who receive this letter, the seven churches. We will not, it's, it's like God is saying, I will not end this letter until you know. You are not ignored. Your suffering is not going unnoticed. We might say, there's the, the 144,000. There they are worshiping for the land. What about right now? And our great shepherd says, I see you. You are not going unnoticed. Elder, ask him a question. Who are they? Where have they come from? Explanation. It's so that you might know, saints, that your tribulation is not being ignored. Though great, the saints who received this letter, they were suffering exclusion from society, death by the sword, economic oppression, compromise within the church, 
pressure from the government, so on and so forth. They would read of these 144,000 being sealed of the multitude in heaven and say, what about us now? And the elder says, who are these people, John? And John could say to the church, it's all of you. Hold fast to Christ. John could look at the churches of Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus, Pergamum. And when John, when they begin to realize that those who are there are those whom John is speaking to, those who, who are hearing this letter, they may have begun to weep. They may have begun to meet, weep in the midst of their tribulation. Christ sees my trouble. Christ is even ordaining my trouble. Christ is using my trouble as a tool to purify me. It may have brought tears to their eyes. To hear that those who were not allowed to work, who were going hungry, that Christ would say to them, you'll hunger no more. Those who may have not been allowed to go to wells, to draw water, to hear Christ saying, you'll thirst no more. Those who are being told that they were unorthodox, that they did not truly worship God, hear Christ say, and they will be before my throne. They will be in my temple. I will tabernacle over them. I will lead them to springs of eternal life. It may have brought tears to the suffering eyes of the saints who first received this letter. It may have brought tears to saints throughout the ages and maybe even to some of us today. And Christ says, before the silence, here's what Christ says. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Chapter 8, verse 1, there will be silence. There will be no more said. Heaven will be in absolute awe of God. But for those suffering saints, before there is silence, Christ assures them of this. Every tear will be wiped from your eyes. I don't want you to think of this book as a puzzle that must be laboriously put together. It's much more than that. It's a letter from our great shepherd who is greater than Moses. One who will not only lead us to the promised land, but unlike Moses, who was not able to enter, has already gone before us. And here's what he says as he is in the land waiting. And preparing to come and get us. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me. To render to every man according to what he has done. Hold fast, children of Israel. Your deliverer is coming soon.